Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 21. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. Normally, I like to get right to it regarding these two-parter episodes, so I'll spare you the clever preamble. Just remember that tonight's story is Part 2 and the conclusion to a two-part episode. So, if you missed Part 1, go back to last week. It's called A Passing Interest in the Occult Part 1. And listen to that guy. Or you just might be a little bit lost. Alright, glad we got that out of the way. Let's, uh, dive right in. Shall we? 
You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Now, I want you to really consider this for a minute. It's really not very much money, and you get to listen to all the stories ad-free. If you hate the ads, that is the way to go. Now, I'm sure that won't stop some of you from posting loving comments about the ads in the comments section, but my response to that will be a similar invitation to the patrons area. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies when nightmares come to life. Welcome, visitor, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado, from author M.C. Tucker, I give you part two and the terrifying conclusion to Accomplice. I took a sip of my beer. It was sour in my mouth. I didn't know who this man was, but I was confident that John would not be happy about being discussed with him. I uh, don't know what you're talking about, I replied, firmly, when the priest's mouth tightened. Hmm. Well, tell me what you think you know about him. I was incredulous. I stood up and picked up my jacket. Father, you followed me and frightened me. Now you're interrupting my quiet drink. I am not interested in what you've got to say, and I am not going to talk to you about John. Is that what he's calling himself now? The priest asked quietly. John? I hesitated. His question threw me, and my plan to storm off had faltered. What else would he call himself? I asked. The priest gestured to my seat. I understand if you don't want to answer my questions, but if you'll sit for a while, then I'll tell you a few things you need to know. The priest talked for a long time. He drank another whiskey, and the smell in his breath was overwhelming. He told me about how he'd been looking for John for years. He'd known he was in Canada since the start of the decade, but to trace him to this city, this suburb, and a quiet engineering firm had taken such an incredible amount of work. So many relentless months of asking the right people the right questions. He was listening to subtle rumors and following the signs. He knew that John would need to settle for some time, and that he would need to find an accomplice. And that accomplice would be asked to do terrible things that John needed done, but could not do himself. That accomplice would be in such mortal danger just by being close to John, and not just physically, but his immortal soul would be in trouble. But that accomplice had a chance now, right now. He had an opportunity to run, not just from the house, but from the city, from the country. Yes, yes, even better. This was his opportunity to change his name and forget his first life and begin another. 
because now was the time that John wouldn't need to feed. I interrupted him, annoyed that I was still listening to this nonsense. What are you saying? I asked. That John is some kind of monster? That he's a, a vampire? No, the priest said carefully. He is something else. Saying his true name will draw his attention, and then he will see that I am talking with you. You can't say his name. He can't know that we have met, not if you value your life. John would never hurt me, I snapped. Has he not already? No. No, I said hotly. No, he hasn't. You, on the other hand, are full of shit, and you're wasting my time, and John isn't what you say he is. He is a friend, and he is an engineer, and I have worked with him for months. The other man looked at me with such disdain that I may as well have been little more than a smear of dog's excrement stuck to the bottom of his shoe. Did John tell you that he was an engineer? Did he tell you that he worked for your company? He asked me. Did he tell you that he was in his fifties? That he was a man? That his name was even John? Did you think to question him on anything? Did you ask him once, John, are you who you say you are? No, I repeated, feeling the need to defend myself. No, why would I? What else would he be, this thing that you can't even say? Young man, I have something to teach you, and I hope that you knowing this will prevent further unnecessary death. His words filled me with a cold trickle. There was no way he could know what I'd done. Hear me. Listen to me. When you look directly at evil, at true evil, you will find that he is incapable of lies. They may subvert the truth with distraction and tricks and terror, but if you have the will and the strength to continue to look, to continue to ask it of its true nature, then he must tell you. He must show you. I left then, struck by the complete absurdity of everything the man said. As I strode out, he called to me and told me that I would find him at the Roundhouse Rectory. I gave him the finger. That week, I tidied up the threads of my life. I formally resigned from work. My boss's concern for my well-being was so much greater than any annoyance at the inconvenience I'd caused him that it had made me teary. Thomas had tried to pull me into his office to talk to me about whatever was going on with me, but I had declined. He looked at me levelly and said that suicide was never an answer, and that help could be found for any problem. I'd laughed then, amazed at where his assumptions had led me. I'm not going to kill myself, I reassured him. I'm just making some changes. I'm fine, Thomas. I cleaned my apartment and packed most of my belongings into my car. I engaged a realtor to put it up for lease. My mail was to be redirected to a postal box in Hemming, not to the house. It could be tricky to find. I sold a few things on Craigslist and spent a day driving through the city, dropping them off. The whole time I kept an eye out for the priest, for Father Heath. The more I'd thought about it, the angrier I'd become. How dare he follow and accost me, and cast aspirations over both John and myself? 
I resolved to put him to the back of my mind. Then, it was Friday. There would be work drinks at the bar, but I had long lost interest in that, and instead spent the evening driving back to my new home. Life settled into a quiet pattern. Most nights we spoke, sitting in the deep chairs beside the fire. During the day, I would spend hours hiking through the forest that backed onto the overgrown field behind the house. Being surrounded by nature and having nothing but my thoughts made me happy. I was eating better and moving more, and I felt healthier and more robust than I had in a long, long time. People are not meant to live the way they do in cities, boxed in and stacked on one another. My apartment held no appeal to me anymore. Absolutely none. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. John was often gone during the day. He never told me where he went, and I mostly never asked him. Most days he returned in a good humor, but occasionally his mood was dark and stormy. On those days I would be wary of getting in his way. There was one incident four weeks after I'd moved in that deeply unsettled me. He'd been gone for three nights, the longest stretch yet, and when he returned... I was annoyed. I'd been worried for him, and I had thought that the least I deserved was to know where he had gone. I confronted him about it on the landing. I'm not in the mood to talk, Ethan, he said in his low voice. Up close, I could see that there were scratches across his face and neck. One of his eyes was puffy. When he'd gone to step past me, I blocked his way and asked again. He had seemed to grow in anger and the air around him became hot, as though fire moved beneath his skin. He slapped me across the face and then bent to pick me up from where I'd fallen from the force of the blow. My face stung, and my ears rang. I gasped as he lifted me bodily and laid me over the railing. I cried out when I saw the few meters I would fall if he'd let me go. Not enough to kill me, but would indeed injure me. Who are you to demand answers of me? He'd yelled at me. I'd felt so tiny in the face of his rage. Who are you to question anything I do? You are nothing! I was suspended there for a moment. I felt myself tip and I was sure he would let me drop. And then, the anger was gone. As abruptly as it had risen... He stood me back up, steadied me on my feet, 
and went down the stairs. There was always a box of sleeping tablets in the top drawer of the vanity in my bathroom. I'd not moved it. I was still confused about the events of the night a month ago, and had remained deeply suspicious of the small pills. But that night, I took one. My hands shook so badly that I'd been unable to calm my racing heart. I wanted to put some time between myself and my distress, so I took the tablet and went to bed. I slipped out before dawn to go for my hike. I stayed out all day, sweating despite the cold as I descended the small mountain on the far side of Hemming. I got lost on the way back home and spent a few hours scouring the forest in the dark and snow until I stumbled across the overgrown field. For those few hours, I genuinely began to worry that I would die out there. When I arrived home, I was starving. My boots had gotten wet and my socks were frozen solid around my feet. Every part of my body ached with effort and chill. I was tired and disheartened. John was concerned at my state. He directed me to stand by the fire, and he helped peel my wet layers off and brought me a glass of red wine. I felt warmth trickle into me as I drank. I kept expecting him to apologize for striking me the night before, but he didn't. Instead, he made sure that I was dry and warm and gave me wine and food, and I followed every one of his instructions. Sit here. Take this eat that. When he was opposite me, I could finally see that he looked shaken. His energy was nervous. He ran his large hands through his dark hair, which, I had to peer to be sure, no longer had sprays of white at the temple. You're not nothing, he said eventually. I said that in anger, and I should not have done so. You are something, Ethan. You're something to me. He reached for my hand and held it between his. Last night, I was upset because I was scared. I've been dealing with a problem. There's another person who's a threat to us. I had to get her unawares, but I did. I did get her, Ethan. This woman. Who would ruin us. Come. I sculled the last of my glass to try to numb the apprehension building in my gut. I didn't want to follow him, but I did. The basement again. Another person had their hands chained to the heavy U-bolt on the ground. A blonde woman who looked close to my age. She only had one shoe on, and the singlet, tucked into professional slacks, was stained with the old blood that she lay in. Her eyes were wide and terrified, and her lipstick was smeared around the cloth gag. Standing there, I knew that the events of that night had been true. It had really happened. That wasn't a grim hallucination brought on by alcohol and the drug. I had stabbed that man. I backed away from the woman. I bumped into John, turned to face him saw the hunting knife he pressed into my hand. I... I don't know if I can. I whispered. My legs started to tremble. I was so, so tired. 
John's hands caught me and supported me. You have to make a choice, he said gently. I can't go on if this woman lives. It's me or it's her, Ethan. I cried then, in front of John and this woman. I cried because there was no choice. It was John. It would always be John. They walked me to her and knelt beside me as I fell to my knees. The expression on his face was grim but expectant. And the first time I stabbed her, I hit a rib and the knife twisted in my hands. I retched as her screams filled the basement. I did it again. And a third time, her writhing stopped. Her screams quieted. And as I knelt above her, I saw something leave her wide, staring eyes. We slept together only once. It happened in the days after the woman's death, at the time the words, my killing of, wouldn't hold in my mind. I fell into a deep depression. For a few nights I stayed up. I didn't get up to eat or shower, only to fill my water glass and use the bathroom. The sheen of sweat and dust and grime that coated my body only perpetuated my misery. I kept seeing her face. No matter how I framed it, I couldn't begin to picture how she was possibly a threat to John or myself. No matter how hard I tried, I could not justify this killing. When John entered my room, I was in a deep, dark hole and couldn't see any way out of it. He sat beside me and asked me what was wrong. I hesitated in answering as I didn't want him to know that I'd begun to question the choice I'd made in coming here. Thinking quietly of Father Heath, I sat up and looked at John. The closeness of his stern face and strong frame was comforting. It made me feel protected. The temptation to lean into his security and authority and forget everything that upset me was overwhelming. But I asked my question. Is your name John? I asked, and he frowned at me. Do you doubt it? He asked. His tone had changed. He sounded quietly hurt. Do you think I would lie to you, Ethan? My heart broke at his words. I sat straighter, wanted to reach for his hand and reassure him of my belief in him. He stood before I could do any of that. Why do you think that I would lie to you? I stood too, reaching for him beseechingly. My depression had become nothing in comparison to my need to undo my insult. At the time, I thought that I must have moved towards him because suddenly we were kissing. When I thought through the moment later, years and years later, I knew that he had instigated it. It was precisely what Father Heath had warned me of. Tricks. Distractions. His lips were forceful on mine and I was filled with the same arousal as the night after Friday drinks. The need to submit. The desire to lose my autonomy. To be dominated. There was a moment of intense pleasure when he entered me, 
I ejaculated quickly, and then my arousal faded. Only pain was left. I started to cry because every powerful stroke felt like I was being torn in half. When he finished, he realized that I was upset, and he comforted me in his arms. And I think I loved him more for this rare tenderness than I was upset at his force. I was sore and bled for days. When it occurred to me that he hadn't answered my question, I contemplated asking it again, but I worried that my asking would lead to the same place. It felt like a punishment that he had exacted on me. I was so terrified of it happening again that I didn't do what the priest had asked of me. The subsequent two killings happened a month apart. The next was another man, silver-haired and muscle-bound. He grunted and struggled so much that I'd sustained a concussion and black eye when his elbow had struck my face. And the fourth was an elderly woman. I could see now what the sacrifices, for that was what they were, I was now sure of this, were doing to John. Over the long weeks, I watched as his skin smoothed and his hair darkened and his muscles firmed. He was becoming younger. Those long nights in conversation became rare. I still lived for them. Lived for the hours beside the fire where John's stories of dead cultures and strange religions transported me away from this house. I craved them. I craved his attention. I didn't go on another hike after that last one. I thought about it, but was reminded of the terror I'd felt lost in the darkness. And soon, the outside world began to look like a threat. I became scared to go outside. The few times I went into Hemming, I could feel judging eyes on me. The man behind the counter at the supermarket knew what I had done. So did the teenager at the coffee shop, the woman at the library. I could see their thoughts. I heard them whispering conspiring to exact revenge on me for the people I'd hurt. They wouldn't go to the police. Oh, no, 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 no. They would beat me and hang me. I stayed inside instead. I slept a lot. I became addicted to the sleeping tablets of which the supply was never-ending. John changed in more ways than physically. He became reserved, brooding, I was less of the engaging, charismatic man who had become the focus of my obsession. Instead, there was this dangerous and violent person. The infatuation I had for him was changing. I lived my days in terror. A sickening, twisting terror in my guts that left a bitter taste in my mouth. I became a thing of shadows. I skittered around, doing everything he asked of me, but never meeting his gaze. I began to realize that I was as Father Heath had described. I was his accomplice. I was being used. He had never loved me. He was using me to do his dirty work. This realization filled me with more grief than I thought I was capable of. I cried for days 
my heart not just broken, but shattered. When he led me into the basement for the fifth and last time, I did this bidding without question. I was too far gone to question him. I was too scared to disobey him. Committing this murder was better than provoking his anger. It must have been close to June when I realized that I needed help to get out. There was no more snow on the ground. The days were long and warm. The fields around the house were bright with wildflowers, and on occasion, I saw deer wandering through the long grass. I was still awake from a night of conversation. John had been warm and funny, but this rare brightness wasn't enough to do away with the shadows. I had gone to bed, and I had heard him leave, heard the silver car come to life, and I'd watched it drive in the direction away from Hemming. I wondered if tonight he would return with another victim. I quickly changed my clothes and retrieved my car keys from the kitchen. He had never restricted my movement. I had done that all by myself. I was horribly anxious leaving the front door. The light was so bright that it hurt, and the sun's warmth on my skin felt like acid. When my car failed to start, I broke down crying against the steering wheel until I remembered that I'd disconnected the battery weeks ago. I connected it and sped off. I didn't slow through hemming. I made the trip back to the city in record time, driving as if the devil himself was after me. I would find the priest. They had said he'd be at the roundhouse rectory, and I drove around and around, too scared to ask for directions until I found it. It had been months since he'd said he would be there, but when I asked for him at the reception, he appeared a few minutes later. He took one look at me and steered me from the building, casting odd looks back over his shoulder. He got into my car and instructed me to drive us to the bar where we'd last spoken. I could feel him studying me on the way. I knew I looked terrible. I'd lost a significant amount of weight, and I couldn't remember the last time I'd shaved or had a haircut. My clothes were rumpled and too big. I was no longer certain that in a fight with this older man that I would win. Being barely midday, the bar was almost empty. We would be able to talk without any risk of being overheard. What has he done to you? Father Heath asked softly. I broke down. I told him everything. He offered me his hand and I clutched it like a lifesaver. I told him about the murders. My murders. And the love I'd had and the fear I had now. And when I was finished, completely spent and exhausted, there was a knowing glint in the priest's eye. If I wasn't mistaken... He looked almost pleased. Did you do what I told you to do? He pressed, and I nodded. And did he answer? I shook my head. I couldn't bring myself to tell him what had happened. Do you believe in God, Ethan? I hesitated. When I replied, my voice was hoarse. I didn't, but now I do. 
I've never before seen any evidence that a god does or could exist. Until now. Father, I think that I've seen his opposite. I think that John is the devil. He lunged at me as I spoke. His hands went from my mouth and he collided with me and tried to cover my face to stop me from saying those last few words. But he was too late. As the barkeep yelled at us to get out, the priest was already pulling me to my feet, dragging me to the door. What did I say? He moaned in despair. If you say his name, then he will hear and he will come. We must go! We need to get out of here. He broke into a run and I followed him around the bar, out back to the parking lot. But we were too late. John was already there. Hello, father, they said in his low voice. That voice struck such fear into me that my hands began to shake. I took a step back so that I was behind the priest. I never before claimed to be brave, but now I knew that I was a true coward. I thought that I'd smelt you lurking around. I didn't realize that you'd met my good friend, Ethan. My knees were weak. Ethan, come here. It's time to go home. He held his hand out to me, and dear God, I reached for it. The priest gripped my arm and I saw what I was doing and withdrew. John's eyes flashed darkly. Come to me, Ethan, he said, and I wanted nothing more than to obey him. The grip on my arm tightened. Why don't you let the boy make his own choice, priest? He makes no true choice of his own when you speak, Father Heath snarled. His free hand went for his throat. He pulled the crucifix free of its chain, held it tightly. John smiled so terribly that for a moment, the world darkened. We have work to finish, Ethan. I pulled my arm from the priest's hand. I'm not going with you! I took another step back, towards my car. My fingers found the key in my pocket. I am not going back to that house! I am never going to be able to undo the things that you made me do! He stepped closer, his palms out towards me. I cringed at him, and he stopped. I made you do nothing. You have made all of your own choices. Don't deny ownership of them because you've become ashamed. Do you know why I chose you, Ethan? Because... To be the type of man who would kill for the approval of another is a special thing. It takes a rare depth of desperation and sadness. Qualities that define you. He started moving again. Father Heath got in his way and was cast aside with the ease of pushing over a child. I tried to run for the car, but he was in front of me, in between me and my vehicle. I sobbed as he came closer. I cried out as he reached for my right hand. He was taller than he had any right to be. He was growing. He blocked the sun. 
Even in shadow, I could see far more of his eyes than I should have been able to. His grip on my hand tightened and I heard the small bones break before I felt the pain. What's your name? I asked him as the grip tightened. I screamed and sagged. Father Heath held his crucifix aloft and started to pray in Latin, and with my hand in the tightening vice, I could have screamed at him because... Couldn't he do something useful? Didn't he have a gun? What is your name? I shouted again. John continued to change. He became swollen. Huge. His arms were like trees, and his face was terrible. His eyes glowed as his clothes split. His breath was putrid, and I couldn't hear the priest's desperate prayers over the rumble of John's growl. I screamed my question for the last time before he answered. He told me his name, and it wasn't John. It wasn't anything that any man should hear. He became something that no man should see. At that moment, I heard the priest screaming, heard him screaming for help, and my mind dove off a cliff. I welcomed the rush of darkness, because it was better than insanity. When I woke, I was tucked in amongst crisp hospital sheets. A middle-aged doctor who spoke with grim gravity told me that they'd been unable to save my hand. He reassured me that with time I would be able to return to my pre-morbid function without it. Pre-morbid function, he said. That phrase became something I would dwell on in the years to come. When he asked me what had happened what it was that had closed on my fingers with such force that they'd not just been crushed, but almost liquefied. The memories began to rise, and with them, the incredible terror that had sucked me into darkness. I'm not ashamed to say that I started to cry then. My fear overwhelmed me. I became hysterical in its grip. My sobs began to upset other patients on the ward and the doctor administered a drug called ketamine to quiet me down. But it wasn't for my hand that I'd sobbed. It wasn't for the pain or the future struggle to return to my pre-morbid function. It was fear for my soul. When I surfaced from the induced coma, I knew that I'd had to come clean about my crimes. I asked the doctor on duty, now a young woman with auburn hair, to call a priest and a police officer. The policeman was there already, wanting to ask me why I'd been found unconscious and bleeding beside the dead body of Father Heath. We waited on the priest, and I confessed to everything. That was thirty years ago now. Thirty years ago, I'd walked through the garden for the last time, pointing with the bandaged stump of my right hand to where I knew the bodies were buried. The house was demolished, and the gardens dug up. I found more people than I'd known about. 
Most had lain there since before I'd met John. John. The only name I had for him, because his proper name was one that I couldn't hold in my mind without my sanity being threatened. I was given a life sentence for every single soul they unearthed. Nineteen consecutive life sentences. I would spend the rest of my natural life in prison. But I was okay with that. This life was temporary, and I had a lot of ground to cover before I died. I feared my death. I had to make amends before I met it. One of those uncovered was a man who could only be identified by his teeth. A 47-year-old tax accountant called John Evans. I was never charged with the death of the father. The coroner ruled his death a myocardial infarction. His heart, being older and weaker than my own, had just given up. My family never contacted me again and didn't attend my media circus of a trial either. I'm not certain if they took legal steps to disown me, but I certainly wouldn't have blamed them if they did. I'm sure that my name is the filthiest thing that could be uttered around my elderly parents. I've spent the last thirty years trying to redeem myself. I go to church not just on Sundays, but every day. I become a pillar of support for the new inmates, someone they can turn to for help when being harassed by harder men. I've learned new skills and passed them on to others. I've had my sentence reduced by nine years for being an outstanding member of the prison community. Ah, nine years. They could take off an entire century and I would still never walk out of here. And I didn't think I would want to. Until today. Today, a new inmate arrived. A young and lovely man whose youth made me feel exceptionally old and weathered. His hair was long and dark and his skin yet to be marked by the hardness of life. But something about him made my heart race, made my breathing speed up, and my skin feel hot, and my tongue heavy. When he smiled at me, I wanted to scream. For the first time in twenty years, I wanted to escape. I wanted to run. I wanted to hide. I knew his name even before the corrections officer told me. John. You've been listening to part two of Accomplice by author M.C. Tucker. For part one of M.C. Tucker's Accomplice, be sure to check out last week's episode. I highly recommend it. MC Tucker comes from Western Australia, where she spends her days reveling in the chaos that is work as an emergency room doctor. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, 
Available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, 
You'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.